Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30, page 890 in your pew Bible, and 1146 in following Jesus. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as a father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go for children's worship or nursery, now would be a good time to dismiss them. And Miss Brittany and our volunteers will walk them over. So in today's text, we find one of the most pronounced teachings in the Bible on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And it's from texts like this one from which the doctrine of the Trinity emerges. And if you've been around Christianity for long, you know that teaching and preaching on the Trinity is remarkably uh, difficult. For starters, nowhere does the Bible say explicitly that God exists as three eternal persons that we should call the Trinity. The pieces and parts are all there in the Bible, um, but it's not expressed systematically in one place like you might have in the Athanasian Creed. So when you're preaching on one of these texts, it's easy to miss something that's in another text and then as a preacher trapes unknowingly into false teachings that are potentially even heretical. So 
If I say anything this morning that sounds weird or sounds out of line with orthodoxy, I invite you elders and I invite you congregation to call me on it. And if it is indeed outside of orthodox Trinitarian thought, I will not obstinately maintain it. Uh, So there's my, my disclaimer. But I have an invitation, an invitation to each of you for this Sunday and next. In these two Sundays, I want to invite you to reflect on the nature of the Trinity. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about this idea of the Trinity in unity. I want you to aim to understand our triune God better, and I hope to guide you through this journey of reflecting on the Trinity. Now, as 21st readers of the Bible, there are some common errors that we should be aware of, some potential interpretive pitfalls that we should avoid as we reflect on the Trinity. So I want to start this morning by giving you three interpretive guardrails to rein in our reflection. So if you want to jump to the back of your worship guide, there's space to take notes. Here are three guardrails to help protect us as we go. Here's your first blank. Rather than giving into rationalism, let's embrace the mystery of the triune God. Rather than giving into rationalism, let's embrace the mystery of God. I'm going to make a declaration about all of you that I am very confident about. I don't care how old you are. I don't care or how young you are. I don't care where you were born or what worldview or church or tradition you grew up in. Every single one of us tends to be a rationalist. It's in the air we breathe, it's in the water we drink, it's in the TV shows that we watch. Whether you realize it or not, you're a rationalist. And you might think, rationalist? I don't even know what a rationalist is. How can I be a rationalist if I don't know what one is? So I'm going to hold up the mirror and let you see yourself in it. The rationalist impulse that pervades our age and has for hundreds of years says, if it doesn't make sense, I don't believe it. And if it doesn't make sense, it needs to make sense to me before I can believe in it. That is, at a lay level, rationalism. And when you're reflecting on the Trinity, rationalism can be a problem. Because it ain't going to make sense to you. There's going to come some point where you just can't grasp it. You're going to exit your intellect and you're going to enter your imagination. And it's probably going to go even beyond that. So let me give you an example that we're going to discuss more in depth next week. So in the Athanasian Creed today, we said this. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten of the Father alone. This idea that we see in the Bible, you see in passages like John 316, this idea that the Son of God was begotten of the Father, but not created or made, is very difficult. How can Jesus be begotten of the Father and also be eternal? How can he be begotten but not have a a, a beginning? Because it seems that the very idea of begottenness suggests that there was a time when the Son was not. But there are scriptures that argue otherwise. The rationalist that lives inside me and inside you has a really hard time with this because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit within our experience or understanding. J.J. Wood is sitting right there. J.J. is my son. He is begotten of me, correct? 
And there was a time when J.J. was not. When we think of begottenness in a human context, that's how we think about it. So when we think about the begottenness of the Son, we can be tempted to think about it that way. But that's not what the Scripture says. Jesus was begotten of the Father, not in one moment in time, but he was eternally begotten of the Father. A rationalist can't process that. Therefore, they reject it. It's hard. It's above us. It's mysterious and arcane and strange. It takes some imagination. It goes beyond rationality. So when, why doesn't rationalism work then when we're talking about the Trinity? Because the Trinity is ultimately a mystery. It's above our comprehension. That's the point of the St. Patrick cartoon that I sent out this way. I hope you all saw that in the email that we sent out. Did, did anybody see that? A few of you did. If you hadn't seen it, you can go back or you can go on YouTube afterwards, search for St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. Uh, St. Patrick goes to the 5th century Irish peasants, and he's trying to explain the Trinity. And the, the two guys say, oh, Patrick, you've you got to keep it simple with us. We're but mere peasants and so he says, okay, well, I'll explain the Trinity. It's like a three-leaf clover. Or it's like the sun where there's uh, the sun and then light and then heat. And each analogy that he tries to use ultimately breaks down. And the peasants are apparently well-read in church history because they keep responding, oh, Patrick, that's modalism. That's Arianism. That's partialism. They point out all these heresies that come about every time he tries to explain it. And so any analogy that you use to explain the Trinity ultimately just doesn't work. They break down because what we're trying to do is we're trying to fit unearthly and transcendent God into these very earthly, tangible categories. And it it won't work. So there has to be mystery throughout the discussion, and there will be parts where our rationality and reason will fail. So if we're going to try to avoid rationalism, we're going to try to not fitted into our reason and our understanding of the world, how should we approach the issue then? Well, a fairly common response, even probably in St. Tammany Parish, would say, well, let's just be good biblicists. Let's just say what the Bible says about the Trinity. You can't go wrong there, right? You'd think I'd be really excited about that. Well, here's a second guardrail that keeps us from going off that side of the road, too. It's your next blank. Rather than giving into a rationalistic biblicism, let's find our place in the continuity of the Western creedal tradition. So rather than giving into a rationalistic uh, biblicism, let's find our place in the continuity of the Western creedal tradition. So the common response of let's reject rationalism by just going with what the Bible says, that impulse is itself rationalistic. And it's a result of rationalism. How? It puts all all the focus on you and how you read this. Any impulse that says, I'm going to withdraw with just me and the Holy Spirit and my Bible, that is rationalistic. Listen, creeds and confessions exist for a reason, namely to guard against heresy. They were written in the past to deal with heresies that were wreaking havoc in the church as guys were reading this and coming up with their own interpretation of it. So we would do well to listen to creeds, to listen to confessions. And there is a trend within evangelicalism that says we should all interpret the Bible without any presuppositions whatsoever. No creeds, no presuppositions, just me and the Spirit and the Bible. But there's two problems with that. First, it's impossible 
No human being can interpret the Bible without presuppositions. We all have assumptions, experiences, and a worldview that informs how we read this book. So that's the first problem with the approach. It's impossible. But second, a sort of rationalistic biblicism makes a remarkably prideful assumption that my rationality and reason or our rationality and reason as a community is somehow greater and more accurate than 2,000 years of spirit-filled Christians. It's like saying... For 2,000 years, they've probably been wrong, and I can't trust their, their thoughts. The Holy Spirit clearly wasn't leading them to understand the Bible. But us, we're going to have some fresh, new reading that is more right and more accurate and more biblical. It's prideful. So I want to fight against that. We should have the humility and enough faith in God to believe that his people have gotten the big picture of the Bible right. Over the last 2,000 years. There have been errors. There have been false teachings. There have been heresies. But consistently God brings his people back to the truth. That's how the spirit works. So as we explore the Trinity. We should do so. In a way that is aligned with the Apostles Creed. The Nicene Creed. The Athanasian Creed. And other great documents. Like the, the Westminster Confession. And catechisms. The Heidelberg Catechism. The list goes on. So that's our second guardrail against biblical uh, non-credal rationalism, which is to, to find ourselves in the continuity of the Western creedal tradition. But here's a third guardrail, which probably is not as necessary for our crowd, but I figured I'd say it anyway. It's your next blank. Rather than giving in to a skeptical view of New Testament doctrines, let us grasp more fully the idea of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Now, no one threw a tomato at me. Progressive is not a curse word. Uh, we believe in progressive sanctification. It's okay if you have progressive insurance. And we believe in progressive revelation. But what does that mean, progressive revelation? Let me give you an example. When you read the Old Testament, you never hear any talk about people going to heaven when they die. The doctrine of heaven is practically, if not entirely, absent from the Old Testament. In the same way, the doctrine of the Trinity is a lot, Trinity is a lot clearer in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. That's how God chose to reveal himself. He revealed bits and pieces of the truth progressively over time until finally with the coming of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, everything was made complete. So we shouldn't get nervous when Jesus or Paul suddenly makes a massive claim that wasn't in black and white in the Old Testament. We shouldn't be skeptical of those parts of the New Testament because God called Jesus and the apostles to fill in the blanks. And the Trinity is one of those doctrines that was more unclear in the Old Testament. So that's our three guardrails. Let's be cautious about rationalism, about non-credal biblicism, and skepticism rooted in the timing of God's Revelation. If you have questions about any of those, I'd, I'd take questions now, but just for time's sake, if you have questions about those three guardrails or about any of the stuff we talk about today, I am here, and I'm happy to talk about this. This is something I've thought about a lot over the last couple of months. Our elders would be happy to talk to you as well. Um, so feel free to let me know uh, later on. So with those guardrails in place, I want to look at our text and ask two questions, only two. How are the Father and the Son the same and how are the Father and the Son different or distinct? This week we're going to address the question of how they're the same. 
And next week we're going to see how they are different. The people who miss this sermon are going to come next week and think I'm a heretic because they didn't get this, uh, this foundation. But why? Who cares? What's the point? Here's the big idea for this Sunday and next. It's your next one. The big idea is this. Reflection on the Trinity invites our wonder and worship. Reflection on the Trinity invites our wonder and worship. That's the goal. To chew on these things, to contemplate these things, to imagine these things, and in so doing to be swept away with wonder at who God is and to worship him. So if we walk away without wonder and worship, we've done something wrong. You will not leave here today fully understanding the Trinity. I probably doubt I'm going to give you any kind of new insight. I don't feel like I have anything novel to share with you. Instead, I want to invite you to reflect on the nature of God in a way that you're struck with wonder and are moved to worship. So let's reflect then on how the Father and the Son are the same and therein feel ourselves compelled to wonder and worship at who our God is. So how are they the same? Here's your next point. God the Father and God the Son have both always existed and are both fully God. God the Father and God the Son have both always existed and are both fully God. So as God the Father has always existed with no beginning and no end, so also the Son exists as well as the Holy Spirit. Let's examine the idea through the lens of our text. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. If you'll remember, last week we looked at the guy who had been healed at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Uh, Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Pharisees, why are they mad at Jesus? Two reasons. First of all, it says he broke the Sabbath. Technically, he didn't break the Old Testament Sabbath. He broke the laws that the Pharisees had stacked on top of the Old Testament Sabbath laws. So they had said, oh, you've got to rest on the Sabbath. So what does that mean? You can't carry a bundle through town, so you better not be carrying your mat. So he had broken their conception of the Sabbath. But you know what he also did? He did make himself out to be equal with God. I think they got that right. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus in this text is declaring himself equal with God. And this agrees with what we saw back in John chapter 1. So kids and grown-ups, y'all been coming to Sunday school? Uh, Those of you who have been coming to Sunday school, we've been memorizing John 1, 1 through 18. So let's remind the congregation of the first two verses of John, the whole book. Here we go. You ready? John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning That's right. Well, I heard another translation in there. That's true. But it ends up, he was in the beginning with God. John 1, 1 and 2. So from the very beginning of this book, John has been laying out this truth. That God the Son has always existed with God the Father. The Son was not the first of creation. He was not a creation of the Father. No, he is fully God as the Father is fully God. And the things that Jesus says in this text agree with that. He does declare himself equal with God the Father. 
the, the stuff that Jesus says in this text affirms one of two things. This text is the dividing line where you have to decide either Jesus is a, an absolute lunatic or he is fully God. Because the stuff he says in this text in ancient Judaism will get you killed in a New York minute. Listen to this. Verses 21 through 23 and then verses 26 and following. 21. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Who is the creator? From whom does all life come? God. So as the Father has life in him, Jesus says, So the Son has life. This is nuts. 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says, if you do not honor me, you do not honor the God you profess to to worship. He's either God or he's nuts. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Therefore, Jesus says in 28, Do not marvel at this, because their mouths are probably hanging open, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus makes these wild claims that God the Father intends to share glory with him. That the very self-existing, self-generating life of God also resides in Jesus. That the Father has delegated to Jesus the role of final judge of humanity and the source of resurrection. And if these claims aren't audacious enough, look at the one I included in your worship guide from John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Intentionally echoing the name of God, I am that I am. So what do they do? The verse says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What Jesus says in these verses are insane to a Jewish worldview. They didn't expect their Messiah to actually be God or even have characteristics of God. So Jesus is either God or a lunatic because these specific claims This is why he was killed. He was crucified on charges of blasphemy, of making himself equal with God. And that is what we believe. But why? Why do we believe these claims of a guy who could very well be crazy? Why do we believe that Jesus is, in fact, the eternal second person of the Trinity? Here's your next blank. The works of God through Jesus, but most specifically his resurrection, argue that he was telling the truth. The works of God through Jesus, but most specifically his resurrection, argue that he was telling the truth. If Jesus was lying, God would not have raised him from the dead. If he professes to be God, this is not a guy that God's going to snatch out of a tomb. If he was a blasphemer, God would not have used him. If he was a liar and a lunatic, he would still be in hell today. But that's not what happened. And that's exactly the point that Jesus makes in verse 20. Look at it. 
Chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. He says there's bigger stuff coming. And it's going to show you the truth of what I'm saying. If you think Jesus and the things he says in this text are wild, wait until you see what else the Father has planned for him. The resurrection is still ahead. The transfiguration is still ahead. All these mighty works that back up the audacious claims that Jesus makes here. And all of his great works demonstrate that God the Father and God the Son are both fully God, co-equal, and co-eternal. And as we reflect on this idea, the proper response is wonder and worship. Can any of us fully grasp this idea that God the Father and God the Son have always existed and been fully God? No, we can't. But consider this. This is one thing that strikes wonder in my heart in this text. The absolute boldness and courage of Jesus to say these things publicly to his opponents, knowing what it would cost him. Jesus' courage and truth-speaking in this text caused me to wonder at him. It makes me enjoy him even more. And that enjoyment of the person of Jesus is itself worship. So I invite you to reflect on the co-eternality and co-equality of God the Father and God the Son and let your reflection stir up your own wonder, your own worship of our triune God. It's been really neat. I work on sermons about a month at a time. I work kind of piecemeal over weeks. And so I've known this is where we were headed for a while. And the more I've chewed on this text, the more and more I've found myself just wondering in amazement at who Jesus is and at who our God is. And I encourage you, the more you chew on these ideas and chew on texts like this one, the more your heart and your imagination will be stirred up to worship our God. So let your imagination dwell on this text within the three guardrails we set because reflection on the Trinity invites our wonder and worship. But that's not the only way that the Father and the Son are the same. Here's another one, your next blank. God the Father and God the Son also work together. They work together as they always have. So kids and grown-ups who come to Sunday school, let's let's go back and rehearse the first three verses of John 1. So we're going to add one more verse on there. It talks about how they work together. Y'all ready? Here we go. John 1, 1 through 3. Y'all ready? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. We actually went to verse 4. I decided I wanted to tag that one on. So good job, good job. In Him was life. Jesus, in the beginning, with the Father creating. That's what John 1, 3 says. So when God created all things at the beginning of time, it was not one person of the Trinity working independently of the others. No, the Father and the Son were working together, as also was the Spirit. God the Father and God the Son have always worked together. They did it in creation. 
But they also did it during the son's earthly incarnate ministry. And Jesus describes that in depth in our text. In verses 19, 20, and 30, Jesus says that the father showed the son what to do. And then he did it. In verses 26 and 27, God the father delegates to the son functions that he had in himself. The father and the son working together in league with one another. They had the same ends, the same goals in mind. And their capacity to complete that work flowed from a shared divine capacity and essence. They're both God, the father and the son, so they can both do God things. Look again at verse 21 and then 26 and 27. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Because the Father and the Son are both God, they can both do God things as they work together. And guess what? They're still doing it today. Even though the Son is now in heaven with the Father, they are working together to accomplish their works on earth through the Spirit. Do you think God is not at work in this world? Do you think that God has made himself absent from this place? Hebrews tells us that the Son has been seated on the throne and the earth is being made his footstool. The Father, Son, and Spirit were working from the the first day of creation and they are working today to accomplish their works purposes. And one day, when Jesus returns, the Father and the Son and the Spirit will continue to work together to bring this story to a perfect completion. Look again. We'll see that picture in our text as well. Verses 20 and 21, and then 25 and following. Verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he's doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. So this is happening when Jesus was here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. People dead in their souls and their transgressions and sins will be brought to new life. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming, so it's not yet here, but an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just, but I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You'll notice verse 29 is used in the Athanasian Creed which we read earlier. That's the description of the resurrection there. So these verses are, are highlighting actually some differences in what the Father does and in what the Son does. But what I want you to see is they're working together even as they're doing different things. When Jesus returns one day and judges, when he speaks and every dead human being comes back from the dead, Those actions of the Son will be done in conjunction with the desires, intentions, and actions of the Father. They always work together. How does reflecting on that, the unified work of the Father and Son, how does that bring about wonder and worship in your heart? I don't know. 
I'll be honest, I have a hard time as a human coordinating with my wife just to pick up my kids from school and get them fed and to trail life or ballet on time. <laughs> Working together, even with someone that I, I feel very unified with, just doesn't work a lot of the time. Our session, we aim to be on the same page a lot of the time, and we love each other, but we disagree, and we butt heads, and we, we struggle together to get where God wants us. We have to compromise to make things work. Never with God. Among the three persons of the Trinity, there is never confusion, disagreement, debate, or disconnect. Throughout all eternity, God has been of singular mind and purpose without fail and without faltering. And you know what that means? You can trust him. When you can trust nobody else, you can trust him. He is greater than us in every way. And that leads to a final way in our text that the Father and the Son are the same. Here's the last three blanks in your worship guide. God the Father and God the Son equally share inherent glory. They equally deserve the worship of all humanity. The glory is the first one. Worship is the second one. And they equally share the worship of redeemed humanity. So they equally share inherent glory. They equally deserve the worship of all humanity. And they equally share the worship of redeemed humanity. Let me unpack each of those statements, reflect on them, and then we'll be done. So the Father and the Son uh, share inherent glory. That means that as the Father is glorious, so also the Son is glorious. Now when the Son took on flesh, his glory was veiled, but not diminished. He was still fully God in the flesh, fully holy, fully glorious in every way. So that Jesus can say in verse 23 that the Father desires that every human being would glorify him. Here's something I want you to chew on. When we worship God together, when you worship God in your private devotions, you're driving around listening to praise music or something. Whenever we worship God, we add nothing to his glory. He is eternally glorious, and he has no need of glory or praise from us. So when we worship, we're not making God glorious. We're simply describing who we know God to be. We we describe and proclaim what we see in him already, and we invite others to worship him as he is. So there is no deficiency in the glory or beauty or majesty of the Father or the Son or the Spirit They equally share inherent glory. And as such, they deserve the worship of all humanity. Our God deserves praise and worship and adoration and service from every human being. And that's why we exist. We were created for this. To see God, to know God, and to worship God. Every human being owes that to God. His glory demands it. And in some ways, that is our first sin not honor him. And when we gather and we worship him like we're doing right now, we as the redeemed people of God, when we worship God the Father and God the Son equally share in our worship. So you don't have to worry that if like we had one week where all the hymns we sung were to Jesus and we never mentioned the Father or the Spirit. There's no fight that happens in heaven. Ah, they didn't, they didn't worship me too. No, it doesn't work that way. When we glorify Jesus... It honors the Father and the Spirit. 
And when we honor God the Father, it glorifies the Son and the Spirit. And likewise, when we worship the Spirit, the Father and Son are glorified. They equally share in our worship. In fact, the way this text reads is that the intent of the Father is to exalt the Son. So that if you worship the Son, the Father is glorified. And what is the work of the Spirit in every one of us but to convict us of sin and to draw us to trust Christ? It is as though the triune God is pointing us all to glorify Jesus and in glorifying and exalting the Son, the Father and the Spirit share in glory. Just listen to this as I read 21 through 24 again. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. The union between the Father and Son, both in essence and intent, is so unified that to worship the Son is to worship the Father. The Father is glorified. The Son is glorified. We are a Trinitarian people, but our hope is centered on Christ. He is at the heart of our Trinitarian religion. So do you want to glorify God and glorify the Son and praise him for his work of redemption? This honors the Father and the Spirit to do so. Are you caught up yet in the wonder of it all? Does it call you to, to want to chew on this, to meditate on this, and to find joy and beauty and majesty in it all. Imagine it, that the triune God, who has no need of you or me, who has no need of our glory, has chosen to glorify himself by redeeming us. And through what means? The death and humiliation of the Son of God. It staggers the imagination and leaves us gaping for words to describe the mystery and the beauty of this God that we serve. And really, nobody puts it better than old Paul in Philippians 2. Look in your worship guide for this uh, reflection of Paul. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't give in to rationalism, non-credal biblicism, or skepticism. Instead, reflect on this wondrous mystery and worship. Give yourself over to imagination. Chew on this idea of the triune God that you may worship him. If Chris would come, I've asked Chris to choose two songs uh, for a slightly wider space for reflection and worship following this sermon. So I encourage you to let your imagination swell, to ponder these remarkable truths about our God. If you wanted to choose one of these songs to just sit and pray and ponder, that's okay. Enter into this space of wondering at our God 
and worshiping him. So let us wonder and worship together.